0: Hello and welcome to SKUcast. This is Mark Graham and we are back with another edition of our supplier CMO series. In this series, We interview prominent marketing professionals on the supplier side to uncover what it takes to market effectively within the promotional products industry. Supplier marketing professionals often play a less visible role compared to their sales colleagues. This is not entirely surprising given sales is very much on the front lines of our business. This series is designed to uncover the personalities of our supplier marketers and to better understand the role that marketing plays in bringing promotional products to market. On today's episode I am very excited to welcome Julie Fritch VP marketing at Starline to the program. I've known Julie for several years and first met her when she was in the marketing department at Jetline and then she moved from there to Prime after the Prime acquisition and then since then moved over to Starline where she now heads up their entire marketing team. Julie is an artist She claims that artists make the best marketers, and I wanted to talk to her about this and many other subjects in this wide-ranging conversation. So with that, I'd like to welcome Julie Fritsch to the program. And Julie, it is wonderful to have you on the program here today. Welcome.
1: Thank you, Mark. Good to be here.
0: Yeah. All right. So let's jump into your path to the VP marketing role at Starline. Can you tell me a little bit about your journey that took you from where you started in the industry to where you are right now at Starline?
1: Yep, absolutely. So I started in the industry with a company called Jetline and I was with Jetline in Mount Vernon, New York for about eight years. I started in the proofs department. Man, if you wanna really know the nitty gritty about a company, start in the proofs department, right? Cause you learn, just about everything from how to deal with customers to what imprints are good and what imprints stink and how to fix them. And then I slowly worked my way up through marketing at Jetline, great crew there. And then um, about two years ago, Jetline was acquired by Prime, spent a little time there. And then the opportunity at Starline popped up. And that was a opportunity I jumped at because I've known of Starline for quite a while, and just the quality of product was, is really spectacular, but also just our dedication to the technology side of things, right? Not only the emphasis put on technology in terms of driving the company, but in terms of the talent that we have on staff. So that was really intriguing to me in their work with Promo Standards, which I think is great strength of the industry. So that I, I, I came over here to Starline, and I've been here for about a year and a half now.
0: So what was that like moving from Prime before you started at Starline where you were in a marketing role and obviously a senior marketing role, but you weren't in a CMO role within that large company? What was it like going from a large company in a senior-ish marketing role to a smaller supplier? And when I say smaller supplier, Starline is still a significant size supplier, but just a little bit smaller than Prime. To that, that to Starline, where you were moving into that executive CMO role, was there some culture shock there in terms of you 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 moving into that role, or would, did you slide right in there gracefully?
1: I would like to think that I just kind of slid in gracefully. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if everyone agrees with that, but yeah, I mean, look, uh, Starline is about the size that Jetline. Um, Was before they were acquired, and so that brief time over at Prime, um, you know, a company of that size is kind of a different animal, Um, and it has to be at that size, right? There's a lot more people involved. Um, It's, it's, I guess it's just, I guess it's just a little bit different, and um, because there's so many more people, you have the, you know, it's, it's got its pros and its cons, right? You, you probably have the ability to. Tackle larger projects um, because you have so many people. On the other hand, with a smaller supplier, you still have that nimbleness, right? You have that ability to change on a dime to adjust to um, your distributor needs and and the changing needs of the company. Um, so it's it. I think it was a natural progression for me because I had just come from a company that size that Starline was,
0: right. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's really interesting. Um, So at Starline right now, can you tell me about the makeup of your marketing team and what each person does?
1: Yes. So I have an awesome team. So there's four of us, including myself. They're made up of US and and we have um, one of our members is in Canada. So we have two full-time artists. One artist is mainly focused on image work, taking photography, processing it, putting it out. The other person is focused on marketing materials, right? And that's a full-time five days a week, eight hours a day, for both of them, right? Where I come from, imaging is, I think, our strongest marketing resource. It is the most widely repurposed. It is the greatest scene. If we said nothing else, if I did nothing else all day long, I would want to make sure that those images were solid, right? So those two artists are really a great resource. Another girl here in New Jersey, we're actually in New Jersey. Starline's based in New York, but the marketing team in the US is actually in New Jersey. Close to the city, really easy to find talent. This other girl in New Jersey, she's our data queen, right? She has everything, everything you see on Starline from the distributor tools like, you know, ESP, Sage, Common you know, Distributor Central. She's got all that stuff comes from Christine. She's managing um, our website. She's just generally making sure that everything is correct. And that has been a strong focus of mine since I started is making sure everything across all platforms is consistent and correct. Cuz look, I mean, I understand that distributor experience right especially from my time going working my way up from my I guess the beginning of my career you hear about it you know I understand how great of a disruptor that is when a distributor finds incorrect information goes to the end user with it and then you know that reflects poorly on them so that is a huge um I guess uh priority to me is to make sure that all that information is correct so christine um, our girl here in new jersey she's awesome um she takes care of all that and then we have a freelance photographer too Uh, and all these guys they all have an art background which is nice right i think i think artists make the best marketers all of us went to art school and i i think it's that art school experience that makes you think that way right because it's there's no other time that you have to market well than when you stand up in front of all of your peers Or you watch, uh, I went to the Rhode Island School of Design and we had eight-hour critiques, right? You'd stand up in front of like these really brilliant people and you'd have to defend your work, right? There's no greater marketing task than that, right? To defend what you've done or quite frankly, it wasn't even my stuff, I think, which was the most interesting. It was a kid who like went out and partied all night and had, you know, spent 10 minutes on his assignment and then had to defend it. Because marketing is all about storytelling, right? You hear a really good story come out of somebody that needs to suddenly defend their work.
0: Right, right. Even, even though they were out all night, you know, partying and worked on it for 10 minutes with me, that shows their true genius that they're able to able to do that. I think that's really interesting, you know, this idea that some of the best marketers started off as artists. And, and I don't know that I would necessarily disagree with that. But I, as do you, know John Norris quite well. And I know I've had some Uh, interesting conversations with John, given that he comes from a a, a very data-focused engineering background. How does your background as an artist coming into marketing prepare you for interactions with a highly rational, data-focused senior executive like John Norris?
1: Working with John is like, for being someone who's passionate about marketing, is like a kid in a candy store, right? Like John and his team are just, John built the ERP and the the CRM here at Starline. So coming in, knowing that it's like, first of all, I was just blown away by what was already available to me, right? The reports, the, uh, the way the system functions and flows, and it's so tailored to the way our industry works. And it's just, it's, a, it's an awesome thing, right? To just, just right off the bat. And then, my experience right away was I'd I'd look at the development team and I'd I'd want something. Well, I think it was like, I think my first thing I ever asked for when I got here was chat on the website because I, (laughs) right? Like there are just times when you don't even want to pick up the phone, right? Like maybe it's just a millennial thing, but you just need a really quick answer, you need like 10 seconds of someone's time. And I think the chat feature on a website is a really good way to accomplish that. So I, I looked at my designer, I looked at John's team, and I said, I just want chat. And in my experience, that was a, a hard thing to get on you know websites in the past. But John's team did it in like, about a half a day. And it was up and running instantly on a website, you know, like, having that resource base is has been huge, you know, and that was just a the tip of the iceberg. And from there, you know pretty much anything I can dream up, provided they have the the time and their schedule they can do, which is from a marketing standpoint, massive, right? That's huge.
0: Well, I think the success of any marketer, whether they come at it from a scientist perspective or an art perspective is if, if, if you've got great data and you can segment your customers and you can understand the kind of order activities and you can understand the different, like where products are popular in certain parts of the country, then that, that that's amazing for someone who's artistic because they can go and take that data and tell a fantastic story around that. And so I think the fact that you've got that, I think, is I don't know that I can definitively say that that's rare. But I think for many suppliers that are at Starline's uh, size in the market, probably don't have access to that data because they may not have robust enough ERPs or CRMs they may be working with things that are maybe less sophisticated so i imagine that's pretty cool for you switching gears here i want to understand how you and your colleagues determine your marketing budget and what channels to invest in every year
1: basically i mean obviously it's a, it's a certain portion of you know our sales every year right it's a it's kind of a fixed spend in terms of how much but I, you know i think it's based on a what have we done what's worked? What isn't working? I think, you know, marketing's like that, right? You you craft a campaign using the best of your knowledge and the best of your resources that you have available, and then you, you launch it and you wait and you watch, right? And you're looking at analytics and you're looking at reactions and sales and all this. You're gathering data after it launches and then you take that and you either adjust that same campaign or you use that information that you have to build another campaign. And so... Building a budget is, I think, similar to that in that you you do something which is you know essentially what you did the year before, and you analyze it with everything that you have available to you, and you toss what doesn't work and you replace it with something better. Essentially, I don't know if that really answers your question, but that's kind of how I do it. And well,
0: no, I think that it, it perfectly answers the question. Um, as for the for the latter part of it, how do you determine or how do you prioritize the channels that you invest in the Starline?
1: So uh, you know it's it's hard for from for this industry obviously you know I, 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 it's talked about fairly often right like we're, the suppliers aren't interacting with the end users and so we're not necessarily affecting the sale at the moment that we're marketing and and the RO you know the ROI is hard to determine because you know, the analytics don't necessarily speak to that end sale okay so that's part of it. Um, and not everything provides provides roi look a ton of my budget goes to catalogs every year and that provides practically no roi at all right, um, or
0: measurable right it's hard right, to measure right
1: it provides no measurable roi right it, it doesn't provide me any analytics on how many people are using it I, heck nobody could be using it and i'd never know you know but other than other than the feedback that you you know the verbal feedback that you get from suppliers and i know it i know it's effective look i lived in the south for two years with jetline moved down to uh gaffney south carolina and i was down there in the uh from my experience, different different parts of the country are reliant on different kinds of materials, like the South all the catalogs. If you take away the South catalogs, the South is not gonna use you, it's, it's my experience, right? So I know that people use it and people depend on it, but that gets a little bit hard to calculate, right? So I just basically go on, for the things that provide analytics, those are obviously my strongest channels, I think. For the things that don't, you just kind of have to go by the feedback that you get in terms of whether you keep that around and obviously from the conversations happening right now in the industry the catalog is not ready to go away right and so you just kind of mix up your channels because everyone has their their favorite right some people are catalog people some people are all digital
0: so what what i think is interesting about the the comment you made about the catalog is i wonder whether we're reaching this point of equilibrium as it relates to no catalog versus catalog within the industry. And the reason I say that is that if you're a a larger supplier, like Starline is, and you're a supplier that has been in the industry for some time, so you've got a broad distribution of distributors that work with you, and you've got a, a varied product line, right? Like you're not a one trick pony, you're in bags and you're in You know, all different categories that I'm not sure whether the catalog will ever really go away entirely for your class of distributor. I think if you're a younger, brand new, niche oriented uh, supplier that comes in with, you know, one particular product line and you're a digital native and you're young and you're going after a certain slice of the industry. I think you'd be crazy to print a catalog. You don't have those traditional distributors in the first place that care about you in the first place. So you're likely not going to be targeting them with as much success. So I think that whether that's a blessing or a curse for Starline, I just don't know whether we're ever going to get to a point and it could be in 10 years we're having this conversation where you're still cranking out the catalog. You may not be cranking it out at a at a, a you know huge numbers, but I think you still will be investing money in it. And that's just, I think, the virtue of your size and your product line and just how you have grown up in this industry. So that's my hot take on that.
1: Yeah, I tend to agree with you. You know, I, I don't think it's going away anytime soon and you're right. I think it depends on what kind of a supplier you are and and who your audience is and you know, with Starline it's a it's certainly a mix. And we have a we have an interesting product line. I mean, we're we're everything from like hard hats to um, yeah. drinkware, just kind of everything in between.
0: All right, so we've talked about the channels that you invest in, can you give me some specifics in terms of one or two channels that are absolutely amazing for you, like taken to the bank? And then how about the channels that are on the bottom part of that list? Like the ones you still invest in, but you're like, ah, oh, you know, they're just they're just not as successful as, as maybe they once were, or they're not nearly as successful as the ones that are at the top.
1: Yeah, so, you know, obviously the ones that I, I think are successful are, um, obviously digital more than print right that's yep. that, uh, and and i say that because i think i think i think people lean more toward even if, whether they want to admit it or not lean more towards digital they might like to have the catalog on their desk but how often do they look at it versus going online right so i plus digital is giving us those analytics that i like and i know it, there's a good amount of the industry sitting on digital right because i can see yep. You know, assuming the, assuming everyone's not lying to us, there's an awful lot of people sitting on digital, right? Yes. So yep. I, I tend to sway more digital um, things that provide analytics, and um, quite frankly, the closer to the sale that you get um, is obviously a better investment, in my opinion. So things like um, virtuals, when you have somebody on the line who wants a specific product for a specific logo, um, paying for placement on places like ESP and Sage and, um, tools that offer that kind of, um, that kind that kind of advertising. So they're really clear that you've got a co- you've got a distributor looking for a specific category in which you sell product, um, versus like a print ad where, um, you're gonna, I, I might pique your interest and you may save that ad, but I'm probably not getting you right when you have a distributor in mind for that product. So, um, Things that you know, the other the other side of the coin is just the closer to the sale, but also um, platforms that allow me to provide you content that you can repurpose. So I'm a big I'm a big believer in social for that reason, right? Um, you've got a direct connection to your and the distributors, assumingly, have a direct connection to their end users through this channel. And if I'm providing content that people can repurpose, I'm essentially acting as your marketing team. Yep. In fact, I look I look at distributors as my, as an extension of my marketing yep. team, right? We're, we're all, we all have the same goal. We're all trying to get that end sale. So if I can provide you content that you can repurpose, um, I'm all about that. Plus I, I know how many people are interacting with me. I know what posts are successful and what, what posts aren't. And quite frankly, I watch my competitors pretty closely on that platform too. Um, so I, I think social does really well for us.
0: Fair to say that things that are measurable, things that are digital, things that are social and shareable are are most successful for you in the in the items that are not digital, like the print ads. Would you put trade shows in that category as well? Like trade shows not necessarily digital or social, but it seems like they're evaluated in their own league.
1: <laughs> yeah. Trade shows are sort of the understood necessary evil, right? right? Like you need to do them, but they're very difficult to measure. Right. So yeah, they're kind of the the in-between, kind of sort of hard to get definitive feedback on.
0: Right. I, I think that one of the problems that you as suppliers face is that you've got a lot of people that represent different channels that come at you for budget. Is there a, a sense... I mean, I'm getting the impression that you'll you'll talk about things like a print ad, okay, that is not super measurable or is not measurable at all. It's more anecdotal as to whether people like come up to you and say, hey, I saw your ad in such and such a magazine, great design. But for the most part, you just, you really don't know what comes about from it. But at the same time, you still invest in them. Is, is there a, as a supplier marketer, is there almost like a sense of obligation to invest in some of these channels for... Supporting the industry, or are is it not as charitable as that?
1: No, it's not as charitable as that. I have no problem saying no to that stuff. Look, I mean, yeah, I, yes, you do, but I think it's more, not so much about supporting that kind of that kind of stuff as it is about spreading out your. Look, everyone's got their thing. Some people want to get their info from a magazine. Some people want to get it from to use. Some people want, you know, I, some people want to go to trade shows and, and learn about their new products there. I think you'd be foolish to cut anything out. I might not do 40 print ads a year, but I'll probably do one or two just kind of to keep my foot in the water for people who that's their jam, right? In the same way that I do an email blast every week, but I, w- I would never do it every day. Like, day. First of all, I don't think, do you ever want to hear from a supplier every day? I think people who do it every day are just crazy, but <laughs> maybe some people like that. I would never do that, right? Try to keep my toe in the water on as many different channels as I can just because I know that's somebody's cup of tea and I can reach – somebody in that way.
0: Yeah, I think what what we're learning throughout these discussions with various marketers is that approach is the function of the size of supplier you are. I mean, in speaking to someone like David Clifton at Alpha, which they're a huge supplier, they need to be absolutely everywhere because they've got every single different type of buyer. Starline's a bit smaller than Alpha, of course, but you're at that size where you still need to cater to the entire industry, whereas this aforementioned small niche supplier that just comes up and only invests in digital, they could probably care less about uh, magazine. They don't care about that kind of distributor, not because they're mean people. It's just because they only have a limited amount of money and it's better for them as a marketer at that size to double down in a few very focused channels as opposed to being more broad. So I think you bring that luxury because you've been around a little bit longer and you can have more fun, I think, in um, spreading your dollars around.
1: Yeah, when you're a smaller supplier, you have to be, you know, you're fighting the big, I always laugh, I'm like, I always say, I don't have CJ money right from hit, And I, I love CJ. But look, I'm fighting some really big dogs in the industry, who are selling, you know, similar products that I am, and who have a lot more budget to do it. When you look at that challenge, you have to be a little bit more resourceful. And you have to be a little bit, you, know, you obviously, you know, you can't afford to be everywhere. So how you choose, I guess, becomes a little, a little more of a craft.
0: Right. I agree. And I'm looking down at one of the questions I wanted to ask you, which is, you know, advice you have for a smaller supplier without a formal marketing uh, person. And I I think at the end of the day, like that really comes down to focus and (laughs) you've got a limited amount of dollars. You're going to go after the small, very focused demographic within the industry, knock their socks off, rinse and repeat. And then hopefully you attract more of those people the next year. And then you have a little bit more marketing dollars to be able to go and expand the pie. But if you, you try to go and take, hits approach at the very beginning if you're a half a million dollar a year supplier in sales you'll be knocked out in the first round i just find it so fascinating as to how marketing evolves and and ebbs and flows depending how large you are i want to shift gears and talk a little bit about promo standards as i mentioned at the beginning john norris is one of the original architects of, of promo standards i know there's a few other dedicated folks that are involved in setting the standards for this can you talk a little bit about how promo standards impacts your role as a marketer
1: yeah so uh, i th- i love the idea of promo standards right i think it makes sense for the health of our industry and and just for the you know, streamlining uh, effectiveness between a supplier-distributor uh, relationship, I think this is brilliant. I, I'm glad to see as many people adopting it as do. So there's uh, how it affects the company as a whole. And then how it, affects, how it affects marketing is it takes a bit off our plate, right? Like I said, you know, I have Christine here, who's our data guru. And I hate when she spends, you know, like she, look, when you're managing 900 products, the amount of time that it takes to keep those products accurate, whether it's an imprint change or a price change or just something that legacy data has become inaccurate. Or, you know, like, <laughs> I always laugh when distributors are like, why don't you just keep it up to date? And you're like, oh my gosh, I have a person on this, you know, a full time person on this all constantly. It's just, a, it's a challenge. So, promo standards, you know, Starline is um, hooked up through a number of um, distributor tools and that takes the, Onus then off my team frees up my team instead of correct you know constantly making corrections um, and data updates it frees up my team to do actual you know more proactive marketing stuff so um, it's been super helpful.
0: So so, so in a perfect world, uh, when Promo Standards is up and running perfectly with regard to uh, uh, transmission of product information all in real time and can be uh, spit out to all the different uh, databases and distributors that you work with directly. Um, How does that impact someone like Christina's role? Like is she repurposed into another part of the organization where she's now focused on higher value activities as opposed to wrangling data, which I'm sure has got to be like knowing John Norris, like he must absolutely hate the fact that there's all this time wasted there. And it could just be a matter of having this beautiful promo standards set of data that is just feeding these different databases in real time.
1: I've got got a list about a mile long of things that proactive things that my team could be doing in lieu of some of the stuff that we are, right? So yeah, Christine will be repurposed. In fact, other people who, you know, if it takes off some of the ease off customer service, they're repurposed to do more outbound work. So it's definitely, it's been a positive impact. It's it's not really just about cutting overhead, it's about taking your current resources and just repurposing them to things that are moving the needle within the company. And not just, you know, I I remember, you know, in years past where it would be someone's job just to like send out tracking and to, you know, answer inventory and, you know, just stuff that's now being automated, which is great. So repurpose and, and move the needle.
0: Right. I think it's a great example and there's been a a, a lot of progress made. We, I know with Promo Standards and the different suppliers that support that, but I could imagine as a marketer, like that'll be amazing when that day comes when you don't have to worry about feeding these di- like not only are these different databases, but you've got all these different Larger distributors that are also looking to interact with you directly, and I just think about all the 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 time savings. So I I know it's a chore to get it up and running, but from a marketing perspective, it's got to be a real gift.
1: Huge, yeah, absolutely.
0: All right, I want to talk about. We've been talking about all the things you've done well, trying to make you look really smart on this podcast here, Julie. (laughs) But I I want to I want to flip the switch, and I want you to tell me about your biggest marketing fail and why it failed. Can you quantify like how much money you lost for the company? <laughs> and and what did you learn? What did you learn? I mean, you still have a job, right? <laughs> but what did you learn from that fail?
1: can't think of a, now I'm, this is probably because I've probably blocked it from my mind. Yeah, I'm sure I'll, I'll get lots of reminders, uh, you know, when people hear this, but uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't think I'm happy story worthy, catastrophic fails. That said, I feel with little stuff all the time. Like we have a meeting every week. We have a marketing meeting every week, right? I let people know what we've been doing. And I, I take a look at things like our, our social and our e-blasts and I'll be the first one to be like, well, that tanked, you know? And I, I think if you don't fail, you're doing it wrong, right? Like you're not taking enough risk if you don't fail. And I, I don't think I'm in a place yet where I can catastrophically fail. I think that comes when I get a little bit more, I have so many things in front of me that they're not safe bets, but they're just obvious low hanging fruit, right? So I'm probably not taking monumental enough risks to fail that that's anything story worthy. But I I mean, I probably have and I just have forgotten. But yeah, you need to fail. You need to take enough risks that occasionally you weighed the risks versus rewards and it was a good enough thing to go for. And, and eventually you're going to fail on
0: that. Well, and Julie, i tell you, if it gets to a point where that failure is so big that you end up getting fired from Starline, we'll whip up this podcast again. <laughs> okay, and, <good. laughs> and you can tell us about it and you know, it'll be really raw. You know, there may be some tears in the podcast, but I, I, I don't think that'll happen. <laughs> but I, but I, I tend to agree with you that the, the safer you are as a marketer and if you're consistently hitting home runs, Chances are you're not taking big enough risks and, and, you know, chances are your returns are, are disaverage and you're not really doing anything out, outside the box. So I think that's a really good, good point. What is on your desk right now? Uh-huh. Like physically.
1: All right. So I drink a lot of Mountain Dew. So I don't like coffee and I don't like tea and okay. uh, I picked just the worst possible alternative to all of that. And I drink like, <laughs> like two things, like two bottles of Mountain Dew a day. Um, and I drink how, many, a
0: day. how many, how many meals? How many what? <laughs> how many ounces
1: oh oh milk okay well like 32 a day but i've been trying to switch to cans that's my variation of cutting down and there are about 10 mountain dew cans sitting on my desk which is typical and then i've got a stuffed quokka a quokka is a animal from australia it's like the cutest thing ever so that when i i get angry i remember that life is still beautiful and cute
0: oh <laughs> uh, is, is it like a like a little teddy bear like a plush or is it a picture
1: It's a plush. yeah. And then, you know, like I've got like Starline stuff all over my desk, right? Like headphones and and mugs and and stuff like that. So it's, it's messy. It's the whole messy desk theory, right? If a messy desk signifies, you know.
0: Yeah, uh, no, I, 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 signifies genius. I really, I really feel that way. But
1: I feel that way. That's why I keep it this way. So
0: when you talk, so I, I'm not surprised you've got Starline gear that is on your desk. Is it, is it there for practical reasons? Like you, are you actually using it or is it there from a, photo shoot or something that, you know, uh, Brian Porter has dropped on your desk to say, Hey, what do you think about this? And you're trying to break it or fiddle around with it or, you know, give some feedback. Like, is it functional or is it just there?
1: <laughs> it's a little mix of everything. It's like, uh, Hey, we just had to shoot this. We're looking at the color of this. I use one of our three in ones. Uh, it's a, uh, it's a can cooler, bottle cooler and tumbler because yep. I'm, I'm big on the can cooler. Right. Obviously my mountain dew thing. So, um, and then but yeah most most of it's like functional like i'm sending this somewhere i've just shot this um, we do all of our our photography in our uh, office here in new jersey
0: okay great well I, I always love it asking that question because it gives gives me a little bit of color into the kind of person i'm speaking to right like is this a serial killer that i'm speaking to or
1: <laughs> i hope i rated well yeah. on
0: that. Uh... <laughs> well, you're pretty high on the serial killer list i mean the mountain dew oof, i don't know about that so I've just got a couple of other questions for you and I wanna shift things towards branding. When you think about the starline brand as the head marketer there, what are the three most important parts of that? It could be values, it could be, you know, service offerings, or it could be product. Like how, how do you answer that in terms of the, the three most critical, unassailable, non-debatable parts of the starline brand?
1: Okay, so so number one is quality, right? Quality of product, quality of imprint, our top claim to fame is quality. And that, and then innovation, definitely innovation, right? Like so we're constantly pushing the boundaries of our print processes. I mean, a huge, a huge amount of what we do is digital, a massive amount, over three fourths of what we do is digital. But within that, we're constantly, you know, we have a raised imprint that's different from everybody. We do braille that's fairly unique. We do free PMS matching on four color process. Like we're, we're always trying to push the realm of what is the norm and go outside of that so that we can set ourselves apart from our competitors. Cause at, at the end of the day, why are you using us versus why are you using somebody else? And yes, the quality is a part of it. Um, and yes, the customer experience is part of it. But I think the unique services that we offer is is something that draws people in. Finally, I think that's confidence, right? You know, when you come to Starline, you're gonna have a, a smooth user experience. You're gonna get the quality that you want. You can turn around to your end user and know that we're gonna deliver what we say we are, when we say we are. So it's quality, innovation, and
0: confidence. I love it, I love it. Okay, switching gears into the industry, what three promotional product industry brands do you admire the most and why?
1: So I think, um, you know, we're talking about taking, this is a good one, right? So we're talking about taking risks. One of the brands that I, I watch just because they're different and interesting is Numo. Numo in Vegas last year did something that I really, like we could talk about, Mark, we could talk about this all day, whether it worked or it didn't work. And I think Melissa would probably be the only one that could tell us that. But Numo did a really different trade show booth design. And a I don't know if it was like yep. the was most- awesome promotional product. And I mean, I guess they're kind of they have a branches retail and that made a lot of sense after that. But like the risks that they took, it was such a breath of fresh air. And I know that I'm sure, you know, with with all the money, there's a huge, huge investment on the supplier end to those trade shows and especially Las Vegas. So to take a risk like that presents itself with a huge opportunity to fall flat in a very pricey way. Right. But what Numo did was was unique. And it was a breath of fresh air, and it was memorable. And people are still talking about it. What? It's June, and that was you know January. So, I liked that. I like newmo I like to watch them. That's that. I guess that's one of them. There's a Gemline. I always like Gemline because I think they keep it classy, right? I know they're a competitor, and if I was smart, I probably wouldn't you know promote a competitor. But uh, they, I like them. I think they're they design a lot of unique product. I appreciate the companies that just aren't the me too companies that um, all all sell the same commodity products. So that's nice about Gemline. And there's a company in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, or I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So I was just sitting there and every time I go to the airport, they have a little airport kiosk. They're a distributor out there. I want to say, but they're a uh, brew city and brew city. I like them because they have such a, now Milwaukee, I suppose is like a unique place. So maybe this is just a local thing, but like they have such a, a rain on the local scene. They They know every inside joke there is about Milwaukee. They design their own t-shirts and apparel and just the stuff that they design is spot on brilliant for the local, for the local crowd, right? I know they're really popular. I adore them. I take a picture of their booth every time I go through the airport. So they're Brew City Online on Instagram. They're, they're an interesting company to watch, I guess.
0: Yeah, that's very cool. I'm just taking a look at them right now. So they're they're a distributor, but a little bit more focused at, uh, at online and retail, and with maybe more of a focus on like licensed brewery gear. Is that is that what they do?
1: Yeah, and uh, just a uh, just a Milwaukee. So like so in Milwaukee, we call water fountains bubblers, Ooh. and we, I'm sure are the only people that do that. So it took me until an embarrassed college kid where I was like, "Where's the bubbler?" And they're like. What the hell are you talking about? And I'm like, you know, the thing that you drink out of. So, like, every Milwaukee person has this awkward moment in life when they figure out we're the only ones that call it a bubbler. So there's all these t shirts to say, you know, where's the bubbler and stuff like that. So they they're 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 so in tune with that local crowd. And I guess Milwaukee loves Milwaukee, but it's yeah. uh, it's a good place.
0: Yeah, no, I I appreciate that. You know, someone from being from uh, Canada and a very and a very proud Canadian at that. Uh, you know, you, on the world stage, you know, you have these funny ways that you pronounce, pronounce things and, you know, you're called out for it. And like, I love it. And so I think in, in many ways, you know, Milwaukee is maybe a, like a version of Canada, just uh <laughs> You know with their with their quirks and stuff so it's uh that's really I, I cool
1: feel my milwaukee accent coming out you know we're, we've got a little canadian thing going on or works.
0: oh yeah for sure for sure it's freezing you know 10 months of the year and you know you're much maligned by like many other people and it, but it, it it you're you're able to uh really band together uh with, with with your fellow comrades that's awesome i'm just taking a look at their site i've actually never heard of them before and i love i love their style and great site design and i just love this like emotional connection that they've got with their audience. And that's very apparent. All right, one more question for you, Julie, and uh, really appreciate all the time you spent here. This has been so fun and I just love the human aspects of, of marketing. You've, you've really delivered on that. All right, so if you could hang out for a day and brainstorm with one marketer, dead or alive, industry or non-industry, who would it be and why?
1: Well, I don't think I'm gonna answer this the way that you probably want me to, right? But-
0: That's fine. Uh- <laughs>
1: I'm going to crush your dream.
0: With that. You're from Milwaukee. Like I could tell you've got this sense of independence. You know, you're just going to do things your own way. You're going to go to the bubbler, you know, you, you go for it. You've got the floor.
1: <laughs> oh, so sweet. So my favorite movie as of late is Moneyball. Right. Yeah. And it's a story good of a good book too. Right. And it doesn't hurt. That, like the movie has Brad Pitt. So let's, let's just get that out of the sure. way. I mean, like, sure, and, right? sure, sure. So it's the story of Billy Bean and he's the, uh, general manager of the Oakland A's. And his team basically just collapsed. He lost a bunch of players. He has a limited payroll and he has to reassemble them, which is, a, which is like a metaphor for me in the industry, right? Like I am always up against the big dogs and I, you know, I might not have the budget of the big dogs. You kind of got to like, you have to be a little bit creative and in, in how you, um, and how you approach how you're going to compete and stay relevant. So he compiled a team using basically analysis and statistics in a time when that wasn't really the thing, right? right? right. People use scouts and, you know, what the guy looked like and, you know, his, his social scene and things like that and intuition and versus, you know, and, and he came in, he basically changed this beloved institution of baseball. I mean, he messed with baseball, right? Like who, who does that? It's, it's this beloved institution. So, and I think I, I admire that so much. And I, I try to watch it every once in a while because it's easy to accept things for the way that they are without challenging them. And it's, that's a good reminder that there might be a better way to do what you're doing that is completely opposite of what you're doing now. And I can't say that I'm a trailblazer in that way, but that's the way I try to approach things. And I try to remember that I I don't want to just accept the way things are because they've been done that way in the past. So it doesn't make me, it doesn't always make me the most popular person in the room, but I think he'd be an interesting guy to pick his brain and figure out, you know, what his next move would be.
0: I think that's a really interesting person that you selected. Like I know that he's not a marketer, but his approach as being this this underdog, this this outsider, this someone who's employing a different approach. Actually, I mean I've known you for many years now and I've actually known you at all the companies you've worked at and I think that is a very good way of describing you. It's actually a very good way of describing someone like John Norris as well, who who I've become uh, um, a big fan of over the years. And I just think like what's interesting about your approach is that you're not one of the big guys. You're not one of the small ones either, but you're in a part of the market where you've got to fight. You've probably got to fight harder to compete against the biggest people in our industry, probably harder than the smaller supplier because the smaller suppliers got the luxury of going after the the niche, going for the edges, the margins of the industry, and they could build a nice couple million dollar business without having the worries that you have because you're quite a bit larger than that. You need to continue to grow, but you're just up against some pretty scary big competitors that can pull some tricks on you that land you in hot water. So the fact that you're comparing yourself to someone like Billy Bean, I think is very, very apt and knowing Starline and seeing Starline over the years, even well before you started there. Um, it's a company that clearly has this renegade spirit that allows it to evolve and to grow and to continue to be relevant in a time when I think that many just suppliers like Starline could be in real trouble. And, and you clearly are one or two steps ahead of that. And I think that that's certainly a testament to, to the great work you do and a testament to the great work, I think, of, of your entire team. So that was my lengthy comment and response to your, to, to your selection, which I was quite excited about. All right. Awesome. Well, Julie, thank you so much for taking the time to hang out uh, with me today. A Really enjoyable conversation. And on behalf of everyone that listens to the SKU cast, thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Mark. Really appreciate talking to you and and, uh, giving me the time to be here.
0: Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Skewcast. Be sure to keep up with our latest content by subscribing to Skewcast on iTunes or to our blog at community.commonskew.com. Until next time, friends. Thanks so much for listening.